and welcome to the EOISS podcast, a conversation about foreign policy what-if scenarios. My name is Florence Gaub. I'm the Deputy Director of the EOISS and the host of this show. And with me today is Natalie van Remdong. She's an Associate Analyst at Institute Heine. Hey, hey Florence. Obviously, this is a bit of a different season that we're kicking off here together. It's COVID time, so this entire series will revolve around COVID-19 and how it impacts on certain things. But you and I today, we will do something a little different. For those of you out there who don't know Natalie, she spends her time surfing the web. She goes deep down where none of us ever dare to go. And she comes back with a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, so today with her, we will actually do something that we have not yet done on this podcast, we will start a counterfactual. So a counterfactual exercise is where you look at the past and you imagine it to be different. So it's also a what-if scenario, but goes in the other direction. Before you start saying, what's the point of this? Because it's in the past and we can't fix it. It still has a lot of interesting benefits. For instance, a lot of foresighters use counterfactuals to understand causal linkages and to learn from the past what we could do differently in the future. I've also found on the great depth of Google that experiments in social psychology suggest that belief in free will is linked to increased counterfactual thinking. Why? Because it emphasizes the agency of humans to imagine that we actually could have shaped the past in a different way. So it's what we call, in a way, creating meaning and sense of self. I'm just reading this out here. Counterfactually reflecting on past events is one significant way humans imbue life experiences with meaning. So that being said, Natalie, today we're going to discuss how would we have lived through the pandemic if the internet had not existed. And I know that you have quite a bold opinion on that. Go ahead. Oh, if the internet had not existed, uh, I think I would have gone crazy already. Uh, <laughs> and I think many among us. Um, uh, I do I do think the, the one positive thing I've seen, if the internet had, had not existed, we might have all written our magnus opus. Like uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear and then uh, Newton did all his best work during the bubonic plague. So that might be one positive if the internet had not existed. Okay, but you also think that we would have uh, managed this crisis in a much worse way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the internet has really, I don't want to say a godsend, um, but the internet has really done exactly what it was created to do during this pandemic. And it's really shown uh, its full potential. And I think the, the main thing that the internet has done that has really helped us all out uh, in managing this pandemic is that it's connected to academics. And this is also what the internet was initially meant to do. Uh, the first internet networks were between academic institutions. And so these academics during this pandemic have been able to share uh, initial data, initial samples. To illustrate this point, actually, um, the entire genetic makeup of COVID-19 was mapped and shared online within days. Now, by comparison, SARS in 2003, it took months. So to just show how the internet has made this process of sharing this knowledge on, on our, our biggest enemy right now a lot faster, it's been very useful. One of the issues that I, I, at least I found with this pandemic was that it moved at a speed that it was for us humans very difficult, or European humans, to understand that danger was actually in the making. And perhaps the internet was the first place where this realization was setting in. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, and I think I've seen this also in my my personal uh, social network that there's been a lot of different risk perceptions of this crisis. So people who have shared, you know, those stories of Italian doctors on their Facebook uh, have been very anxious and asking, kind of pleading to our politicians, like close the schools, close the stores, take this serious. And the conversation online has already impacted in a lot of democratic countries the response that we've made on this. And so this sharing of awareness has come through a sort of conversation and exchanging risk perceptions. Um, and as, as you and I both know, risk perceptions is something you can only do with appropriate information. And again, here, the internet has helped us massively in knowing how this has happened in China, a bit less, I guess, because of the way the internet is less open in China, but especially in knowing how this has evolved in Italy. We know that this can happen to every one of us, that this could have happened to every one of us if we didn't take appropriate steps. But there's something else to this, and that is that so understanding that we have a problem, but then how do we come to a solution, right? Because I don't know if you remember this, but at the very beginning, beginning of March, it felt like there were only two options available. It was either suppression or mitigation. And now we are obviously moving in the direction of a third way. What was the internet's role in, in coming up with a third way, you know, with tracing apps and, and what have you? I think there's an aspect of knowledge sharing and there's an aspect of kind of policy sharing. So how do we determine collectively, how do we find consensus in what we should be doing? Um, and the internet has, has helped us in the sense that um, it's no longer a few politicians or, or a, an elite that says this is how it's going to be. It really is a conversation. And I see this in my country where the majority, the large majority agrees with the way in which um, our politicians are are leading this uh, this crisis response. And this evolves from the fact that you have this uh, information and awareness sharing. And because of the internet, we're able to kind of establish this day by day. Um, I don't think without the internet, we would have been able to change ideas, perceptions and positions on any new measures and regulations. Like the fact that the lockdown is being extended I'm not going to say people are okay with it, but they're a lot better at accepting it because of this public conversation, because of this knowledge sharing. We all know that this is not a situation that's going to end by next month. So because of the, the fact that we're connected in this knowledge, it makes it a lot easier to decide on this day-by-day -day approach uh, instead of going like lockdown or openness. The first aspect is the pandemic itself. So the healthcare measures, I mean... Whether how, however people feel about tracing apps, I think the fact that we're now moving probably into a somewhat more granular approach rather than the first two options that were first on the table, I think it shows that, you know, collective wisdom, because it's basically the internet is that, it helped us move in the, that direction. But let's look at the second order, because, of course, the internet has also had effects in the second order. So let's talk about the economy. So several analysts um, have also pointed out how the economy and, and how we're going to try to keep our economy afloat would not have been as possible without the internet. We all know that there's a big recession coming. This is inevitable. But majority of people who don't need to be in the office are still able to maintain economic activity. Um, being able to work from home would not have been possible without the internet. The fact that we can have all these online meetings uh, with colleagues and uh, have all these cooperation platforms uh, and exchanging our files and being able to do our work from home, something that the internet has, has made possible. 
also for other economic activities. It's not just people working from home in industries, you know, like ours, but also for commercial purposes. I just moved and I've been able to order my entire furniture online. And this would probably not have been possible without the internet. So uh, there's an interesting statistic here because I looked at the numbers of how many people are working from home at the moment. It's interesting that it, there's a lot of variety according to, you know, I, I just looked at three countries in uh, France, apparently it's 34% of the workforce. In Germany, it's 23%, but in the US, it's 7%. It shows that there is an adaptation time, I guess, also, you know. So some will probably adapt faster than others, but it says also something about where the economy was before uh, the crisis hit. But there is definitely a, a component here. If I can summarize what you've said so far, without the internet, we would probably have had, A, perhaps more dead people. We would perhaps have worse response in terms of uh, political management. So perhaps decision makers would have taken decisions without knowing whether the public actually is okay with that. Uh, we would have had more economic impact. I mean, for us, the EUSS, if this had happened 30 years ago, we would have just probably not worked at all because... Or again, written our Magnus Opus. <laughs> or, or we would have all written, well, we would have all written a book. Although for some reason, I doubt it because you need access to... Information. Information. So I think perhaps what would have been written would have been more like opinion pieces. So more novels, not, not really analyses. But how do you think people would have coped with the isolation without the internet? As I said, I personally would have, would have already, you know, crashed without the internet. Um, and I have not at all felt lonely um, because I'm just connected with every one of my friends um, in a way that I would normally hang out with them as well. Um, I, I told you uh, last week over the fact that uh, Netflix created an extension to watch movies together, uh, a Netflix party. Um, and it's, it's those tiny things that make you connected, even though you're not physically in the same location. I've been able to do video chats with my grandma These are, are things like I, I had to convince my family, tell them it is possible just because digital technology seems um, such an overcomable thing for old people. Um, this doesn't have to be the case. Um, and this is on a personal level, but um, on a collective level, the internet has also helped us to make other people less lonely. There has been initiatives by uh, more tech-savvy people who you know, created groups on how can we battle loneliness and, and what are solidarity initiatives we can do. And they've gone to um, residential facilities and supported them in setting up a Skype system for the senior residents. These are the kind of things that, first of all, without the internet, these people wouldn't have been able to get connected and help the old people. And second of all, without the internet, seniors wouldn't have been able to do those kind of video chats. It's these kind of um, solidarity initiatives that are facilitated by the internet. And I'm not at all saying that this wouldn't have been possible without the internet, but it would have just been on a much smaller scale. So this sounds all like internet is just awesome. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we're so grateful to have it. But let's look at the dark side, because I think there are two aspects here that we have to touch on. The first is, of course, disinformation. Yeah. So where information flows, disinformation also flows. Every coin has two sides. If we didn't have the internet, we also wouldn't have had this massive flow of news to confuse people. So where there is an awareness element in the internet, there is also a confusion element in the internet. Uh, people thinking that uh, they take hydro 
clerks in uh, they'll get better or if they uh, jump 10 times and they won't get the virus. Crazy, crazy theories that are spread uh, from your auntie's WhatsApp messages, but also just spread by presidents that just kind of go over the internet in, in a, an astounding way. And what's, what's very concerning about it is that it's being exploited by malicious actors. So we've seen actual disinformation operations. So this not spreading naturally. The EU versus disinfo uh, task force from the EAS has seen Russian influence operations uh, that were corona-related. A, a lot of the narrative is um, that it was invented by the West, that it's a biological weapon, or that it's not at all harmful. Um, just spreading confusion and doubt. Uh, not just Russia, by the way, also Iran uh, and even China has actually abused the internet uh, to spread disinformation. Often to, and this is the second uh, dangerous part of disinformation, to launch cyber attacks as well. So what we've seen is that disinformation isn't just to create uh, political confusion and doubt, but to also be used uh, for phishing attacks. You know, you get an email saying like, the World Health Organization has an update, uh, see in the PDF. You open it and it's actually a virus. There's been ransomware campaigns that have, uh, for example, in the Czech Republic, attacked a hospital that was the third biggest testing facility for the Czech Republic. So these are all these escalades of, of how the internet is also very dangerous in the way that we've completely set our infrastructure, uh, made it dependent on the internet. China has been, well, or let's say that it's a new development, that how aggressive the rhetoric is. Um, it has uh, created Twitter ambassadors, uh, or not created, but it has ambassadors that are extremely active on Twitter that are, you know, driving home that point that China is the best at dealing with this crisis, proving once more that, you know, their system is the best and that democracy is uh, done and dusted for. In a time where there is so much uncertainty, you turn towards the big knowledge bank that the internet is. And of course, you find also a lot of other things that perhaps are not going to help you, but actually going to do you disservice. Yeah, and we've seen this also. I mean, uh, anxious people look for solutions. And one of the, the craziest outcomes of all of this is how suddenly 5G conspiracy theorists, so people who believe that um, 5G technology is going to give you cancer and make you ill, um, have linked up with other conspiracy theorists and are now proclaiming that corona was caused by 5G. Because they said, oh, Wuhan, you know, the city of the biggest outbreak, they were just launching their 5G technology. That can't be a coincidence. And you think this is maybe like fringe conspiracy theorists and just like, okay, that's the craziest bunch of the internet. But it's having real life consequences. In the UK, there's been over 20 5G masts burned. In the Netherlands, six already. Uh, in Ireland, they even burned a mass that wasn't at all 5G. That was just the telecom mass and that actually disrupted essential services. Well, I was not aware of that. But speaking of China, because when we talk about the Internet, you and I, we mean the open and free space where our knowledge moves around freely. Now, we know that China is behind a big Chinese wall of the Internet. Do you know anything about how information flowed there uh, on the other side before it reached us? Yeah, and so, so sorry for not picking up on, on your earlier point uh, uh, on the fact that China is using this Twitter diplomacy to make themselves look really good because uh, a large part of that is to kind of cover up how they botched the initial uh, sharing of information and the initial response, uh, something that the World Health Organization is now paying uh, the price for. And, and one of the, the reasons um, that China 
was so bad at sharing that information might even be unintentional in this Chinese internet. Um, people know that they're being monitored. People know that whatever they share um, might come back to them. Um, and so this causes a chilling effect. And there's been reports on how in Wuhan, the mayors, they made it look good towards the, the hierarchy. Uh, everything is fine. Everything is under control. There's five corona patients in the hospital while there were already like 20 in one corridor. Um, and so this information just did not come out. I'm not saying it was intentional, but it is a, it is a side effect of having such a controlled population online that when things go wrong, information actually does not spread. The way in which China's control over the internet uh, to know everything has actually backfired for them. So would you, because we've had a separate conversation about these different worlds, different internets and the, the, the project that China and Russia have on, on, you know, their version of the internet. Would you say that that's overall uh, undermined their project and actually bolstered our you know, free and open internet, even though it has its downsides, disinformation and anxiety and so forth? I think it definitely showed the weaknesses of their projects um, because they've been boasting uh, the strengths for so long. And now it's really shown like, oh, this is why you need an open internet. This is why you need democratic participation. But of course, they're also covering that, the negative consequences of by going again into the direction of surveillance apps and showing how great uh, they're, how able they are at uh, responding to this pandemic uh, by tracing people and by, you know, uh, doing contact tracing and, and having a full overview of who might be infected, who might have been come into contact. And this has also been quite effective, actually, this, this type of uh, selling their message of, of surveillance technology and, and um, authoritarian control. So to summarize, the question, the answer to the question, what if we had gone through this crisis uh, without the internet? So we would probably have more death. We probably would have more hit economically. We would have lonely people. Uh, we might have less disinformation. We would have less buy-in from the people for the decisions. That brings me to the to the future. How will the internet, the new internet, the post-COVID internet, what, what do you think it would look like? Well, first of all, again, let's look at the positives. Huh? Um, the way in which the internet has now shown its full potential, it, it has really gotten a boost. Um, a lot of the applications that were online um, are now being used to the fullest. For example, one, one thing that I, I thought was amazing was um, the initiative of Folding at Home. Um, and this is, again, made by academics who um, need computational power to do um, certain calculations. And you, as an individual at home with a computer, you can donate some of your computational power to this project. And this was initially made for protein folding and is now used for COVID. And so these are our positive applications of how we can crowdsource the strengths and, and the power that we have in society. So one thing, uh, uh, having um, an even larger application of the technology that is already at hand. A second thing, um, developing new things as well. Um, so what happened during SARS in 2003 was the, the watershed moment of China's uh, economic technological boom. So uh, Alibaba uh, actually launched its e-commerce platform during the SARS epidemic. And we all know Alibaba now. It's, it's one of the biggest companies in China. These kind of crises that allow us to think more creatively and be more connected to come up with new solutions. More internet, uh, uh, better internet, new technologies. But 
here comes the negative. What uh, will the internet look like? Probably more controlled. Let's see what comes out of how, how far this disinformation uh, problem is going to reach. I'm very concerned when I look at these 5G conspiracy uh, theories just like spreading everywhere because the 5G aspect of the disinformation was not coordinated. So connecting 5G and Corona did not come from a malicious actor for now. We don't, we don't see this being pushed specifically by uh, Russian trolls. Maybe we'll find out later, but for now we haven't seen that. This is something that kind of came out of the brainchild of the collective hive mind of, of people connecting things. So who knows um, what might be a, a solution against that. Um, we might have to dial back on a freedom of expression. I hope we don't. I hope we find different solutions. But maybe this is one of the, the aspects that will, one of the ways in which we might battle this. And as a last negative, not only control of content, but also control of movement is, is a, a big problem that might come out of this. Uh, the way in which we all have a smartphone in our pockets will be used. So there, every country is talking about developing an app for contact tracing, and this might only be used for corona response, but if the technology is there, it can also be used for different things. Yeah, unless we find a way where you know this is done in a way that is compatible with our, you know, rights, for instance, because I've had, I've had a few conversations about this and I hear that people are concerned, but, you know, if it's, if it's Bluetooth only, for instance, or if it's uh, you who ultimately decides that you inform the people that you were in touch with, it doesn't go via any other server or anything else. And even if you decide not to share that, then that's your choice. I think there are different ways that we can use this because I think that tracing, even if it's voluntary, even if, I don't know, only 50% of the population participate, it still will have a positive effect. It's 60% is a threshold. At least 60% yeah. of the people need to participate for it to be effective. So, but I think that we can find a way that it is compatible with us. Um, but ultimately, I think that's what that's thing that this crisis has shown, that every society has found ways to respond to it that is in their DNA, let's say, in their cultural, political, social DNA. And that ultimately, you know, for all this discussion about democracy versus autocracy and so forth, I think it doesn't matter how fast you respond. It matters that you find a response that is acceptable and suitable to the society that this is taking place. We have quite a, you know, multicolored, uh, noisy response, but I think we have a, a response that is working. In that sense, I think what's interesting is that COVID-19 is, a well, we all live through this pandemic because of connectivity, because a virus can, within 36 hours, get from a village in China to the next city around the world. But the internet travels much faster than that. I so. sometimes see this as, as one big, uh, you know, as Macron said, we're at war with the virus. I don't think we're at war. We're just the battlefield uh, of this war. And um, the internet is just one of the tools in, in fighting this, where uh, we as battlefields protect ourselves uh, against this virus by, you know, putting information in it. Uh, and this is, you know, a bit, a bit out there uh, in, in, in theories. But I really do think that um, we, we will learn from this. And it's out of conflict uh, that conflict breeds evolution, usually. I, I do think if we harness this uh, possibility um, and as, you know, never waste a good crisis, uh, it, it will actually do as well. Um, and, and one thing that I still wanted to say on uh, casualties avoided, because there will, there will probably still be a lot of people who will die and get infected. But uh, by comparison, um, the influenza, the Spanish influenza um, in, you know, the, the beginning of, of uh, the last um, 
century, you know, 500 million people were infected. Uh, almost 50 million people died, rough estimations. Um, and that had like a, a reproduction number of 2.1. Do you know what the reproduction number is of uh, COVID-19? 2.5. What does it mean? It means that it, it reproduces a lot faster than the Spanish influenza. And the But fact that we're, we're now at a much smaller number means that we're actually succeeding in um, defeating this virus much better than we did in the last century. That's a wonderful note to end on. A positive note. I love it. Thanks, Natalie. Um, thanks to you for listening. Join us again coming Friday for another conversation about COVID-19. And hopefully we will end on a positive note as now with Natalie. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Florence. Bye.